0: Well, good morning. Good Good to see you guys. We're going to start today in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20. If you want a Bible, look, Matt's hopping to it. He's got some, Brick's got some. If you like some, raise your hand, they will grab you one. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods... Before me, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we've been going through the New City Catechism now for several weeks, and the key, one of the key characteristics of any catechism is its exposition of the Ten Commandments, and it's to the Ten Commandments that today we arrive. Now Joel was right. Uh, We typically, in our culture, think of commandments and especially the Ten Commandments as oppressive and burdensome and Not least of which is the first commandment, Um, but I I hope, I hope by the end of this, you will find it delightful and joyful. So let's give it a shot. Uh, First, we're going to see what our question and answer is for this week. So we'll read the question and the answer together. Now, just so you know, we're breaking this question into three uh, weeks. So first, second, third commandment. Uh, But we're going to read the whole thing every week, okay? So let's read the question and the answer together now. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know and trust God as the only true and living God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry and do not worship God improperly. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence honoring also his word and works. You shall have no other gods before me. If I was going to put this into my own words, I would say that what this text is calling us to do as God's people is to have a singular devotion to the one true and living God. A singular devotion to to the one true living God, that our only hope would be in God, that our only comfort would be in God, that our only trust would be in God. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, culturally, as I mentioned, uh, this is an awkward statement to make um, because when you when we think of people who have devoted themselves entirely to some religious cause or some deity, we think at best these people are going to be kind of kooky uh, at worst, they are terrorists uh, and that that to devote ourselves to anything that singularly that significantly, the end is only going to lead to you know standing at a public event with signs and yelling at people like that 's the end and you know if You're devoted, that's where you're going. However, I find it interesting that this this prohibition or this caution that we urge on each other for religious devotion only stretches to really cover religion. It doesn't stretch and cover anything else because for example, um, if you look at uh, love relationships between people, we prize absolute devotion. All you got to do is watch five seconds of a television show, one of our movies, listen to any of our pop songs, and you'll know that absolute devotion is a thing that we love. And then we keep singing about, and then we keep writing television shows about, we keep writing novels about, we keep watching movies about, because there's something about it we, we long for and we desire it. I mean, can you imagine a pop song that says, my heart is only all ever mainly totally for you, except... If you get boring and then it 's for her, but it 's like no it's like the the pop song's are like "You, only you," and we love it. We listen to it over and over and over again, so I would say we 're realists, we know that sometimes love can fall through on us, yes, um, but we 're still smitten with this idea of absolute and total devotion. I mean, how else do you describe or explain? the popularity of movies like Titanic or The Notebook or any of our songs that we listen to on the radio, we want something, we want absolute devotion. So we're, we're not averse to it as a concept, we're simply averse to it when it comes to religion for some reason. And that reason, I think, is related to our first question and answer. If you remember all those weeks back in August, the first question and answer, what is your only hope In life and in death. Well, that's slightly, I'm mixing it up with the Heidelberg Catechism. What is it? What is our only hope in life and death? Thank you. That we belong, body and soul, in life and, that we are not our own. But we belong, body and soul, in life and death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, Now, I I think our aversion to this absolute devotion to God is related to that. It says, body and soul, life and death. Now, I think we're okay with soul and death belonging to God, but body, my, my bodily existence belongs to God, and that's my only comfort. My, my life belongs to God. It's like, it's fine, it's fine, death, soul, yes, but, but what this is saying is everything Everything belongs to God. And this this makes us flinch a little. And yet, the first commandment does not flinch. You shall have no other gods before me. So, what I want to do today is look at that and help us all see two things. Number one, what does pure devotion look like? What does devotion unmixed with any impurity look like? And then secondly, what does impure devotion look like? And then what are we to do about it? So firstly, what does pure devotion look like? I think it means four things. The first is that we acknowledge God as our God. We acknowledge God as our God. So in Exodus fifteen eleven, Moses sings a song to God after he is, after the Lord has brought them out of the Red Sea, killed all of their enemies and brought them into safety. He sings this song. He says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Like it's, it's simply acknowledging that there is no God but this God. There, there is no God but you. Who is there like you? That's what it means, first of all, to have no God but God. So we live in a society, as we all know, uh, that has been fundamentally shaped for about 1,600 years by Christianity. And so for us, whether whether we follow God or whether we don't, most of us would say, if there is a God, there's one God. That Just culturally, we've been shaped that way. Um, But, so so therefore it's not that big of a deal to say it, but when God said to his people at Sinai, which is where the commandments were given, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he is speaking into a polytheistic culture, meaning they had many gods, the surrounding nations had thousands of gods of gods. If you were to go uh, north and to the west a little bit to the Assyrian empire, you would have seen the people making sacrifices to the god of the rivers. You see them making sacrifices to the god of war, sacrifices to the god of fertility, sacrifices to the god of the harvest, sacrifices to the patron god of each city. And if you were to go south and to the east, you would have gone to Egypt and seen the Egyptians worshiping the god of the Nile. You would have seen the Egyptians worshiping the Pharaoh as God. Polytheism was simply the way it was back then. It was the society, it was culturally how they were. And so God comes into that society and says, No other gods but me. So it was a huge deal to acknowledge, simply acknowledge that He is the only God because it challenged the authority and the validity of every other God. Simply to acknowledge it challenge the authority and validity of every other God. But let's come back today. Is it any less crazy sounding for us to say that there is only one true living God? Because to say that is to, to confess that and to acknowledge that is to invalidate And deauthorize every other God. It is to say that the God of the Bible is the only God and therefore Allah is not. It is to say that the God of the Bible is God and Vishnu or Krishna is not. Now, you can see that it still has plenty of potency in our world. And here we are as people who confess that God is our God and that there is no other. Okay. So first of all, what does pure devotion look like? To acknowledge God as the one true God. But secondly, to choose God as our God. So you'll remember when Joshua brings the people into the promised land right at the edge there, he stops and he says, okay, wait, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we must choose God as our God. It's one thing for our rational faculties to to acknowledge God. It's another thing for our will to embrace the one true and living God. Now, as far as I know... Our wills are made to embrace what they find beautiful, or what they find lovely, or what compels them. And you know this, because the things that you love, you have no problem choosing and going after and behaving in accordance with. We all know this. Um, therefore, we must, we must see who God is. Matt, over the summer, did a marvelous job of this, so I won't rehash what he did, um, but we have to bring before our consideration, if we are to choose God as our God, his holiness and that he is absolutely separate from all of things in a category, all of his own, his imminence, that he walks with his people, even though he is holy and separate, he comes and he dwells among them. We must put in front of our faces his steadfast love and how he never forsakes his people, the depths of his wisdom, the heights of his justice, the kindness of his providences, the boundless delight of his happiness. When we begin to see that, our wills will become inflamed. Our love will be drawn out to embrace Him. Okay, what does pure devotion look like? Acknowledging that God is God, choosing God to be our God. And then, thirdly, to trust God as our God. Psalm 4 5 says, Put your trust in God. Notice it's a command. It's saying, do this, put your trust in God, place it there, make an act of the will and put your trust in God. Now, how do we do that? Glad you asked. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name, put their trust in you. So you're starting to see a pattern here. When we see God, when we know him, when we, when we hear the voice of his revelation, something comes alive within us. To know God is to choose God and that is to trust God. Now, what does trust mean? Trust is simply the belief in the reliability of something, okay? You are all sitting in chairs, which means you trust without really even thinking about it, the fact that they're not going to fall on the floor. You trust their reliability. That's what trust is. The Lord has shown himself reliable in every way. When has he ever, people of God, let me ask you, when has he ever failed you? When has he ever left you? When has he ever forsaken you? When has he ever not been fully pouring out his love and compassion and goodness and kindness and mercy and grace upon you? He has never failed us. He has never failed us. And therefore, he has shown himself to be reliable and therefore worthy of our trust. So pure devotion. We acknowledge him. We choose him. We trust him. And then fourthly, And finally, we must set our affections on God as God. You all know, Jesus, when he wanted to summarize these commandments, said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love is the key to this commandment. Now, um, when I was, this is about 10 years ago, Uh, I was in seminary, and uh, I remember being very affected by a sermon that I was reading by John Wesley. Uh, If you know John Wesley, you may have read this one. It's a sermon called The Almost Christian. And in The Almost Christian, he takes his text from the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, where Jesus is speaking with him on the eve of his crucifixion, and Pilate says, Almost, at least this is how it goes in the King James, almost thou hast made me a Christian. Okay, so, so what this sermon is, the main bulk of it, is describing what an almost Christian is. Now, here's what he says that the almost Christian has the outside of the Christian. Okay, listen, he does nothing that the gospel forbids, he does not take the Lord's name in vain. He keeps the Sabbath holy. He does not commit adultery. He speaks evil of no one. He gives away a lot of money. He possesses no small amount of virtue. He considers every word that comes out of his mouth, whether it's for building up or tearing down. And he only speaks what is appropriate to the situation. And he abstains from excess. That's the almost Christian, but there's more. Also, he gives himself tirelessly for the sake of others. He labors day and night for the profit of all. He also does whatever his hand finds to do and does it with industry and joy and diligence. Oh, but there's more. He also frequents the house of God. He is zealous to hear the preaching of God's word and to let it inflame his heart and to let it and to go out and therefore obey the commandments of God. He he is very zealous to come to the table of God and receive the elements and he does so not with flippancy but he comes making the confession lord have mercy on me a sinner he understands what sin means he serves the poor the almost christian brings the needy into his house and cares for widows and orphans He leads his family in worship and prayer and then retires to his own worship and prayer. That's the almost Christian. Oh, there's more. Also, he's not a hypocrite. He does all of this with pure and sincere devotion. He's not acting. Now, I'm reading this. I remember where I was. I remember what the weather was like. I remember where the sun was in the sky. And I remember reading this and sweating. Like, that's an almost Christian? I don't even come close to the almost. Is it possible that somebody could be an almost Christian and have all of that in their lives? And here's what Wesley said. He says... I did go thus far for many years. In other words, I had all of this for many years. And if you know the life of Wesley, you know it's true. As many of this place can testify, using diligence to eschew all evil, here's what he did, and to have a conscience void of offense, redeeming the time, buying up every opportunity of doing good to all men, constantly and carefully using all the public and private means of grace, endeavoring after steady seriousness of behavior at all times and in all places. And God is my witness before whom I stand, doing this in all sincerity, having a real design to serve God, a hearty desire to do his will in all things, to please him who called me to fight the good fight and to lay hold of eternal life. Yet my own conscience beareth me witness in the Holy Ghost that all that time I was but almost a Christian. So what is it, dear Wesley, that makes somebody altogether a Christian. Here's what he says. For thus saith the word of the Lord, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Such a love as this, as engrosses the whole heart, as rakes up, all the affections as fills the entire capacity of the soul and employs the utmost extent of all its faculties. What makes an altogether Christian different from the almost Christian? Love. He loves God. She loves God. And it may be that the altogether Christian is less virtuous than the almost Christian But I will tell you this, that love covers a multitude of sins. Okay. You shall have no other gods before me. What does it mean? You shall acknowledge God as the one true God. Choose God. Trust God. Set your affections on God. Love him. So that's what it means. Now, um, there's a fifth one here that I, and that is to obey God if all of this is true, we must obey him, but I'm going to get to that next week. So I'm going to put that one there. Now, um, that was what devotion, pure devotion looks like. What does impure devotion look like? Every gold has impurities. Every diamond has some, no matter how minute, speck of black carbon somewhere in it. And as long as we draw breath, here in this world, we will always be contending with the flesh who acknowledges only itself, who chooses only itself, who trusts only itself, and who loves only itself. We will always be contending with this flesh. Now, there's a word for this. There's a biblical word for this, and it's a word you all know. That word is idolatry. Idolatry. Now, um, let's define this. Uh, You've I'm I'm sure we've defined this here before using Tim Keller's words, which is idolatry is to take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Okay, now that's a great definition um, and far pithier than what I'm about to say and more memorable, but um, that's great. I'm I'm gonna let, if that works for you and it teases your mind into active thought and helps you identify good, there it is. I I find um, tweaking it a little bit is more helpful to me. And so the way I would define idolatry or an idol is anything like a pursuit, a person, an object, anything that we invest with divine saving power. That's how it makes sense to me. Anything that we invest with divine saving power. Now, how do we know these impurities in our faith? How do we know our idols? I'll give you three ways. Number one, We know our idols by how it feels to lose them, how it feels to lose them. So Philippians chapter three, we have the apostle Paul and he says this, I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, he says, Christ is so valuable to me, I could afford to lose everything else, and it doesn't even touch me. So, think of, a, think of a father who has billions of dollars in the bank, and his little four-year-old son comes up to him with tears in his eyes and says, Daddy, I found your change bowl in the drawer, and I've been taking pennies out of it every day. Now, Now, the The stealing thing, okay, but set that aside for a second. He doesn't even feel that. Something has been taken from him, but he's got billions in the bank, and therefore the pennies are worth nothing to him. That's what Paul is saying. I have seen Christ. I have apprehended him. I have chosen him. I have loved him, and he has loved me. And to lose anything in my life, and by the way, this is not theoretical for him. If you know the life of Paul, you know he lost much. He suffered much. And he says, it's all lost to me. It, it, Christ is so valuable to me. I could lose everything. Now, how does that help us? Um, well, the question I ask myself is, what, am I, what in my life am I afraid to lose because I instinctively believe that if I lost that, Christ is not valuable enough to me to make it up? Does that make sense? What, if, what, what's in my life that if I lost it, I would be devastated because Christ is not nearly valuable enough to me to replace it. Now, this has been going on a lot with me lately. I'm not going to bore you with my own stuff here. Um, but I will tell you the prayers that have been coming out uh, as a result of this. And essentially, I, I think I think this is what um, a prayer like this um, God is, is pleased with. He says, or essentially what it is is this. Um, God starts to hone in on one of these things that we invest with divine saving power. And he is a jealous God as we'll see next year or next week. Um, (laughs) And he won't tolerate a divided devotion. And so he begins to zero in on one of these things. And it's one of those things that we feel like we want to jump off a bridge if we don't have it. It's so precious to us. And Christ is not nearly precious enough to replace it. And so I've been saying, okay, Lord, by smashing this idol, you are um, making me confess that you are all I have, but I don't think I love you enough for you to be all I have. Okay, that's uh, you guys are probably further along than I am, but that's... Man, uh, and that's where, that, that's what this process is bringing out of me. And I think that's what he wants it to bring out of me, F- to, to take this away for a second and say, look, your devotion isn't nearly as as powerful and as hearty as you thought it was, but there's grace and there's kind. And so, um, I, I confess that you're all I have, but I don't think I love you enough for you to be all I have. And he will bring us along. Okay. Secondly, how do we know our idols? Uh, secondly, by how it breaks our heart. So God is the only being in existence that can bear the full weight of human worship. L- look, at, um, look at these people that we worship, the singers and the thing. I mean, how many of them are like well-adjusted people? Like, well, I mean, I'm sure they exist, and I don't know them personally, so I mean, I can't comment, but they do some crazy things. And it's like, I, I'm not surprised because only God can bear the weight of human worship. Everything else that we place that burden on will crumble under us eventually. And when it does, it breaks the heart of the person who worships it. Okay, so, so you know, where, where is your heart breaking? It, it may be, and I don't mean because of grief or pain, but, but it may be that that's a place of idolatry. Okay, thirdly, and this, this I'll spend a little bit more time on. Thirdly, how do we know our idols? By how it invites me to claim something as my own. By how it invites me to claim something as my own. So essentially, what the first commandment is saying, if I believe it, is that I have nothing to call my own. Not one thing. The authority of God spreads over all of my life, all of my possessions, all of my thoughts, everything. That's what that means. I have nothing of my own. So an idol, therefore, is going to be anything I call my own. I like to picture it as, as I think about my internal world, I like to picture it as a great continent and... It's vast and it's expansive and it's beautiful. And, and then you there's this one little spot, like way down by the equator where it's hot and muggy and you know, <laughs> admittedly not a good way to put that. It, okay, um, thank you. Um, the <laughs> anyway, there's a spot, okay? <laughs> There's a spot, and uh, it's muggy, it's hot, it's, you know, undesirable, it's really just a swamp, and there's, it's full of malarial mosquitoes, and nobody wants to live there, but I have erected a fence around it, and I've put a sign on the outside that says, no admittance. This is, this is mine. And the thing is, it doesn't matter that it's a wasteland to me, it doesn't matter that there's You know, disease carrying mosquitoes, and that it's the air is so thick you can barely move. It doesn't matter because it's mine. Out of all this continent, it's mine. Now, the rest of the continent, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. And I'm like, Yes, but my little bog belongs to me. That's what that sign means. Okay? Now, the first commandment essentially says, All of this land whether you put a fence up or not, is mine. It's mine. That's what God says. And my objection, instinctively, is, look at all this land that's yours. Look at the rivers to the north. Those are yours. Look at the mountains to the south. Those are yours. Look at the vast, stretching plains and grasslands. Those are yours. All I'm asking, so small, all I'm asking is just this little one spot where nobody even wants to be anyway. I just want to claim it as mine. And by the way, I spend the majority of my time, not in that land, but roaming around doing good in the other part of the land. And he comes back to me and he says, but you shall have no other gods before me. And my response typically is, but I don't trust you. To care for me in the way that whatever here is here in my fence can care for me, like, like, I, okay. Let's, let's say it's junk food, for example. Let's take an example that's not too um, hot. Uh, you know, it's my, it's my place. You know, it's like I get stressed, I go and I get a frosty or something, whatever, a uh, cheeseburger, you know. Um, and it's like, that's just my place. You know, it's just mine. And, and I know it's not good for me and I know, you know, all the stuff. Um, but it's mine. It's mine. That's my cookie. Yeah, that's my cheeseburger. Um, and, uh, and when God comes and says, I want you to take down that fence. I instinctively believe you can't care for me like that cheeseburger can. You know why? Because when I'm stressed, I eat it, and I feel better, like that, quick, and it never fails. Never. I mean, I feel nasty afterwards, but in the (laughs) moment, I feel great, (laughs) you know? Please tell me I'm not the only one. Um, It's okay if I am. and, uh, and he says, no, it still belongs to me. And here's what astonishes me, is that he owns that piece of land by right of creation and redemption, so doubly, but he doesn't take it by force. Isn't that amazing? He never smashes down the gate and comes in and conquers by force. He is so patient. He is so kind and he is so inviting. And the madness of idolatry is that I'm still guarding it. I'm still patching up the fences. I'm still making, redrawing the sign. That is the madness of idolatry. And I think it... I get this image from a sermon that C.S. Lewis preached called A Slip of the Tongue which is Which is remarkable, and he says that many of us are like taxpayers, I mean we are taxpayers, I hope, um, and uh, you know you know what it is I mean all of us, nobody likes taxes. if world history bears out any truth, it is that, um, but we all. We all approve of it in principle. We know that the government has to keep working. We know we have to have national defense and all that stuff. So we give our taxes, but we're deathly afraid of a rise in the taxes because our whole goal in life is to give our taxes but have enough to live on afterwards. And what Lewis says in this sermon is, That's how we are with God. We make these bargains to to pay our tax and to give him his due just so that we have enough to live on afterwards for ourselves. But what he says is the person who lives that way is the most miserable of all men because there is never enough to live on. Once we have given God his due, there is nothing to live on because he claims all. And it's not our resources or our time. And it's not that that he claims. He claims our very selves. And the whole reason he does that, Lewis says, is because he's love. And love must claim all because love must bless. And he cannot bless us unless he has us. And so if we're like people who go down to a sea and have a a lifeline tied to the tree and are holding that and we're just splashing in in the shallows, he says, God is like that sea, and and the, the greatest temptation any of us could have is to not swim or dive or float in that great sea, but just dabble in the shallows while we're holding on to our lifeline, which is really a death line. So he invites us out. Now, let's apply this. The application is open the gate. That's what he's inviting us to open the gate. He is good. He won't trample it. He, he opened the gate. So ask the question: Where have I erected a fence? Where is it that I keep my thing—the thing that's that's out of school, so to speak, thing that belongs to me? Now that's not easy, as I've said, but, um, but I've found that this. The following prayer is exceedingly helpful, essentially to say, okay, God, if you are going to cut off my delight in these things, then you must satisfy me. You think that he would be eager to answer that prayer? If you are going to cut off my joy in this thing, then you must satisfy me. And by the way, if we... <laughs> If we look at the Ten Commandments as wedding vows, which I think we ought to, then do you know what he's doing? He's already said in Exodus 19 and in the prologue, which we heard Art preach on last week, he's already said, you are mine. I belong to you and you belong to me. I am your God. You are my people. And so just like my wife would be absolutely correct if my devotion to her began to stray, she would be absolutely correct to say, "You owe me your devotion. You owe me your attention. You owe me your love." Why? Doesn't that sound a little presumptuous of her? She's not in here, um, but doesn't she's absolutely right for that? Because I stood on an altar 14 years ago and I pledged all those things to her. And so she's, she's calling up my own character as a man who keeps his promises to say, you promised this to me. You owe it to me. I think God is delighted with those kinds of prayers to say, God, you promised me yourself. You promised to let me drink from the river of delights. You said, that at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You, if you are going to cut me off from this desire right here, you have got to satisfy me. Now, um, let's go back to the, the example of the junk food and whatever is in that fence. Yeah, I used to believe that there were essentially two options to cutting off an idol and having Christ, um, satisfy. So the, the option was this, either obey the demands of the idol, number one, and get my satisfaction that way, or say no and say, Lord, you must satisfy me. Okay. I'm saying no, you must satisfy me. You must give me what that was going to give me. Satisfaction, whatever form it takes. And if that didn't happen in the, on the spot, I give him a minute. Then more often than not, I'm like, well, okay. I'm coming back over here. Now, I've wrestled with this for a long time until I realized that all you have to do is read the Bible, like five words of it. Just choose at random any five words, and you will discover that, that God does promise to satisfy us. God does promise to let us drink from the river of his delights. God does all of this to satisfy in a way that that idol could never satisfy, but he does not make a promise that it will come immediately. He will lift our heads. Even if that is after death, he will bring us into his presence in the fullness of joy, even if it is a long time or years or months or whatever from now. And so our option now is to live in the ache of unsatisfied Desire. Live in the ache because he is good enough. Listen to Paul. He is, he is worth it. Now, um, I'm almost out of time, so let me, let me skip to the end here. While Moses is getting this communication from God... On Mount Sinai, the cloud descends with thunder and lightning, and the voice speaks out of the, the cloud, and the people hit the ground. They don't ever want to hear that voice again, so they're like, Moses, you go up. We want you to talk to him. So Moses goes up, and he is there for 40 days and 40 nights, speaking with God as a man speaks to another man. That's what it says. And getting, and, and these, these very words, they're the only words that are in the whole Bible that it says God wrote with his own finger. My gosh, I mean, it's marvelous, uh, which is probably why we're spending 10 weeks on them, because they're worth it. Now, um, when Moses left to go up to Sinai, we, we don't have any record that he said, all right, I'll be back in 40 days. He just left. They sent him off, and he's up there. And here are the people of God who had just crossed the Red Sea, who had just been witnesses to the miracles of God, the mighty hand of the outstretched arm, bringing them out of Egypt, and they're waiting down in the valley, waiting for their leader, Moses, to come back, the one whom God anointed to lead them. And I, I don't know if you can imagine yourself there, but, you know, after a day, you'd be like, wow, it's a long time up there. Two days pass, three days pass, and they're like, what? When is he coming back? four days, five days, a week, two weeks, three weeks. And finally, they, we don't know at what point during that time they did this, but finally they get absolutely tired of waiting. And so they grab Moses by, or excuse me, Aaron, his brother by the robes and say, make us a God. We don't even know what happened to Moses. He's probably dead up there in that cloud and the thunder and he got struck and he's dead and we need another God now. We're not gonna hear that God anymore because we heard his voice once and we fell to the ground. We can't handle it, so make us a God. And what does Aaron do? He makes two golden calves and he holds them up and he says, behold, O Israel, your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, in in the Bible, idolatry is a capital offense. It it, it means death like that. And so Moses comes down from the mountain on the 40th day, and he sees God's people whom he paid for, whom he brought out of slavery, dancing like madmen before two golden cows. And you know what he does. He comes down with the two tablets of the commandments in his hands, and he breaks them. The covenant was already broken before he even came off the mountain. And so he, Moses, turns aside to the Lord and says, what shall we do? And God says, Moses, you go over there. I'm going to kill all of them. And I'm going to start a new nation with you. And what does Moses do? He says, "Um, with all due respect, those are my people. I belong to them. If you kill them, you kill me too. Blot my name out along with theirs. And that one act of heroism on Moses' part saved all the people. God said, okay, I relent. If you are with them, I won't do it. And he sent a smaller, lesser judgment upon them. But centuries later, there was another man, the man Jesus Christ, who was in a garden, another representative of humanity, another representative of God who who had never... Broken this commandment in his life, who who said, it, it lived every inch, every moment, every minute of his life, adoring God, choosing Him, trusting Him, acknowledging Him, never once introducing the slightest bit of impurity into his devotion, and he is representing now all of these idolaters that ever more than Moses was that ever lived that ever would live, and he said. Lord, if there is some other way, let this cup pass from me. And whereas God said to Moses, No, 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 you are not the man for this job. He says to Jesus, You're the man for this job. And he sends him to his death. And he dies. He, he receives the capital punishment that all of us idolaters deserved. The one who is purest in devotion. And here's what that means. And then we'll come to the table. It means that he has grace for those of his children whose hearts are divided. He knows he understand, He knows what it feels like because he became that person on the cross. He knows. He is a high priest with an awful lot of compassion. And it means that, that we are empowered to obey and forgiven when we fail. And that's our invitation today. Now, um, we come to this table and... We're going to eat the bread and drink the cup. And this table is not for those who have purged all of their idols from their lives. There's only one who had no idols in his life. But this table is for those whose hearts are broken over the idolatry in their lives. And they repent and they want to be made right again. So come and taste and see the forgiveness of the Lord and be empowered in this grace to go and to open those fences and say this belongs to you. I'm going to pray for us and then invite you to come. Well, Father, we love your word. We love the Lord Jesus who gave himself for us. And Father, we confess together that we love your commandment. As far as it reaches, it's there to make us into the best kind of people—remade images of God, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, Father, you know how—you um, know how stubborn we can be about releasing from our desperate clutches, our our idols, those things that feed us, those things that delight us, and so will you show us be and be very plain with us very sensible to us because we're we can be hard-hearted people show us your delights make plain to us all the satisfaction that we have in you so we love you and i pray that you would nourish that faith nourish our choice to walk out of bondage as we partake of the meal. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Brothers and sisters, you may come to the table.